We're going to spend a few minutes just now thinking about this matter of prayer. I'm going to go back to square one with prayer, really, and say, why pray? Why set aside a special week to pray together as a Christian church in Brighton? I put some little pictures, they'll stay there. Different attitudes of prayer. People lift, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed. He was standing. People kneel in prayer, uh, kneel before the Lord. Our traditional method is hands together and eyes closed. I'm not sure that's in the Bible at all, actually, but that, that's a, the traditional method, isn't it? Sorry? Yeah, I'm all in favour of teaching kids to be still and quiet. Uh, anyway, uh, and the mouth is used in prayer. Just thinking silent prayers. Well, silent prayers, aren't they? But prayers, I think in the sense the Bible uses it, largely connected with words. Anyway, why to have a special time? Why together? Now, I found that an interesting question to think about biblically if we pray together. So the question I'm, I'm uh, mulling over is what is prayer? Well, I'm talking to God. Why pray? Is it, if we were to take a very cynical view, we say, is it right? Is it good? Is it meaningful? Is it valuable? Or, in some religions, it's irreverent to ask God for things because he's far above that. It's superfluous, makes no difference whatsoever. Why pray? And I'm going to answer by taking a very quick tour of the Bible, sort of from beginning to end, as it touches on the matter of prayer. So we're going to do a sort of quick tour of the Bible from the beginning to end, and hopefully, as we do so, we will learn some answers to these two questions. What is prayer and why pray? So let's just try and give a a definition. We're talking about something in general. Prayer is understood to be human beings talking to God and talking to God in things like asking. Because pray, Old English means to ask. So prayer takes its name from the idea of asking. So I pray your attention as we think about prayer. I'm asking for your attention. Prayer is generally asking for things, so typically asking for guidance, asking for protection, asking for provision. Prayer includes thanksgiving, so when God has given guidance, protection, thanks, uh, and, and, and provision, it is very natural to say thank you to God. Now, I'm going to give a more elaborate description of Christian prayer later, but this is just to get us going. Human beings talking to God in that sort of area of things. There's many mysteries about prayer. And please let us not think that prayer is nothing but simple. Children can pray, but there's much more to prayer than just childishness. Think about what this says about God himself. Now, there are many so-called gods, but... Uh, and and many of the so-called gods get prayed to in the way that suits them. But what about the real God of the Bible? The real God of the Bible is sovereign and he is personal. 
Sovereign meaning he rules all things in a way that I'll explain in a moment. And personal meaning we're made in his image. We are like him. He is like us in this matter of personalness. And the thing about being personal is that you can have a conversation with a person. And they listen and react and are pleased or angry. God is personal. There's a deep mystery in putting those two words together. God is sovereign and he is personal. The sovereign means he has total control over everything that takes place. Everything in the world to do with things and to do with people. He has total control over all those things. And his control is implemented around a plan that he has to bless this rebellious and lost world. So, he reveals something of this plan to Abraham back in Genesis, where he says, this is my plan, Abraham. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. He reveals something of his plan. All the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, Abraham, through you. That's a revelation of his plan. Ephesians 1.11, Paul the Apostle says this about his plan. Uh, he says, we, Paul, etc., were chosen in Christ, having predest- been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. As Paul putting God's plan in a little nutshell. What was his plan? Uh, well, his plan includes everything. Everything works in accordance with this. And it swept up in this was God choosing Paul, predestinating him, saying, this is my plan, it's fixed, I've decided Paul is going to be saved, and this plan sweeps through uh, the world of things and people, and God works it all out for his glory. God is sovereign. He is sovereign in saving people. He is sovereign in his grace, and he works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's who God is. That's our God. And then we ask, well, if God already has his plan and he has chosen people to be saved and everything is already included in his plan, then what's the point of prayer? What is the role of prayer? If God already has his plan, prayer cannot be us advising God. As if God says, oh, I'm a bit stuck on this. I need some people to give me a bit of an idea And we say, Lord, why don't you save my neighbour across the road? It's not like that. God doesn't need our advice. He already has his plan. God already has his will. He doesn't need extra motivation. It's not like getting kids to do their homework. You know, there's the homework. Come on, do it. God doesn't... God is not a little child who needs extra motivation. And God is already all-powerful. He doesn't need to be urged to try harder. So where does prayer fit in? 
Because here is a mystery. Because God says, I want you to pray. It is part of my will and my plan for you to pray. God invites his people to pray to him and is pleased to hear their prayer. It's a mystery, isn't it? But it's a wonderful mystery. And as we survey uh, through the Bible, hopefully it will become a little bit clearer, but also perhaps a little bit more, what's the word I'm looking for? Inviting. That it will, will say to us, I actually want to be part of that. Now I think about it a bit more. I want to be part of that during this week. Okay, let's go. Let's, uh, if you have a Bible, you find it helpful to, to turn up. I'm going to go to creation. And I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where on the sixth day, God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Just bear with me. That's what God said. And I ask the question, who is he talking to? And I answer the question because man wasn't there. Uh, He wasn't talking to human beings. He's saying, I'm going to to create humans. He was talking to himself. He says, let us create. He is deliberating within himself. And uh, somehow in the revelation of scripture, we're invited to overhear, sort of, retrospectively, what God was saying to himself. And I find this fascinating, that when God was fulfilling his plan to make human beings, he talks to himself. He knows what he's going to do, but in part of that process, he makes it a matter of words. And within the Trinity, as we now as Christians look back on that, within the Holy Trinity there is conversation which, to us, comes across as God deliberating. This is what I'm going to do. There are words of an internal conversation within the Trinity. Let us make Father, Son, and Holy Spirit an internal deliberation. God's words are the active agents of creation. So God speaks and it is done. But words are also part of the internal process of the triune God in this act of creating. Words are part of this action. He talks to himself about it. That's number one. Let's move on. Go to the Garden of Eden. Uh, You might have it before you. It depends how quick your eyes are. I invite you to scan through to find Adam praying. I invite you to scan through and see an example of Adam asking for guidance, Adam asking for protection, Adam asking for provision, Adam giving thanks, and I invite you quickly to scan through that, and I think you will actually find nothing. Nothing is recorded of prayer in the unfallen Garden of Eden. Now, we, uh, that, I wouldn't like you to think that's all there was to it because uh, there was the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and we can assume that there was some sort of 
into communion going on or expected to go on, but nothing's recorded about prayer. The relationship that God has with Adam is he, God speaks to himself, he speaks to Adam. Adam, the only thing that I'm seeing recorded in chapter 2 is talk about his wonderful wife. Uh, the man said, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's what Adam is recorded as saying. He just blurts that out, first poem in the whole world. Not much else. And I would like to suggest, and I, I'm not going to go to the stake for this, but I would like to suggest to us this morning that there is a development down the centuries of the Bible, in this matter of prayer. And uh, so I've, I'm going to put a, a triangle ramping up. There it is, starting there and getting higher and higher and higher. And I would like to say that we, in the New Testament, are at a high watermark of the privilege and possibility of prayer. That we have the highest privilege of prayer. And I'd like to invite us to realise that and to, to use it. If we have this privilege, let's pray. Well, Adam didn't pray much, apparently. There's nothing much recorded. Think about the rest of Genesis. Actually, there's not much prayer in the rest of Genesis. The examples of prayer are few and far between for the patriarchs. Uh, so there's an example, a specific example, Abraham, when he'd got into a pickle saying that his wife was his sister with Abimelech king of Gerar uh, Abimelech king of Gerar was, was, uh, got ill and it said Abraham is a prophet he will pray for you and you will live so there's one, one example not many, there's one example Abraham's servant prays when he's going to find uh, a, a wife for Isaac am I getting that right? yeah, yeah. Uh, and he prays, give me success. Jacob prays when he comes back from his wanderings, uh, save me from my brother. It's a bit of a prayer to have to pray. That's not much. With one notable exception, which we will stop and look at, which was Genesis 18. Please have a quick look at Genesis 18. Genesis 18, which was read to us. This is Abraham... And the matter of Sodom, the wicked city, and God with two angels, so three people altogether, God with two angels, the Greek Orthodox Church I think says it's the three persons of the Trinity, but I think it's actually God and, and, three angel, and two angels, so making three people. Uh, they visit Abraham, they call in on him. And in Genesis 18:16, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And what is said now seems to me to be extremely significant. He says, the Lord said, so he's deliberating with himself, it would appear, shall I hide from Abraham? Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him 
so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised for him. And then we have uh, the explanation of this. And Abraham, in verse 23, approaches the Lord and begins this remarkable haggling over numbers for mercy towards Sodom. It is almost like haggling, isn't it? If, uh, uh, verse 23, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people living in it? And there is this uh, arguing with God. There is this haggling with God which seems to be a remarkable instance of of this matter of prayer. And God doesn't say it's none of your business, I'm sovereign. He actually engages with the process, as we will see. So what what can we see here? It's set in the context of choice. So verse 19, I have chosen Abraham. It is set in the, in the framework of the God who sovereignly chooses. It's set in the context of faith because Abraham is par excellence the man of faith. You have that in chapter 15, verse 6. Am I right? 15, verse 6, where Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham is the man of faith, and this is in the context of faith. And I also notice verse 19, we're in chapter 18, verse 19, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing, two favourite Hebrew words, tzedakah and mishpat, what is ordered, Good, right, um, Mishpat, Sedekah, which is righteous, honourable, morally pure and good. And this is part of the context too. And God says, leading up to this haggling, he says, I'm going to show Abraham something. I'm not going to hide from him what I will do. And the, this, this whole conversation comes in, the, in, in this context of choice, sovereign choice, faith, alignment with God's ways. Do you know what I mean by alignment with God's ways? So his, himself and his family are going to not go their own way, but align themselves with God's way, the things that are right, the things that are just, the things that are God's way of thinking and doing things. That's the line that they're in. And because of this, God says, I'm going to reveal to Abraham, I will not hide from him what I'm going to do. The revelation of his purposes. And on this basis, God is willing to bring Abraham in on the act via his prayer for mercy for the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And I think we have something quite remarkable going on here. Here is the sovereign choosing God who says, this is the way I'd like to do things. Abraham, I've chosen him. He's aligned with me. His whole family is aligned with me. I'm going to share with him 
what I'm going to do. And God knows that Abraham will come back to him and engage with him in this, in this intercessory prayer for mercy. I think that's very instructive. And uh, perhaps it'll become a little bit clearer why that's instructive later. But here is prayer. God revealing his purposes to believing people who are walking in his ways. And he says, that's what I love to do. I love to do things this way. Okay. Let's, let's move on. I uh, can't stop too long on, on, uh, on too many things. If we move ahead, so we've gone from Abraham, we go to Moses. And we think, what, what's the Moses prayer thing? Quite a lot of prayers that Moses himself prayed, a single person. Remember the burning bush? It's got a lot of conversation there, isn't it? Take off your shoes for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And conversation, prayer with God. Certainly Moses. In the setup, the covenant setup, Moses, the people of God, their God, you get this remarkable statement. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us, I should say near, whenever we pray to him? So certainly prayer in, in Deuteronomy. The privilege of having a God who is near to hear prayer. So I'm going to move straight on from Moses to David. Uh, There's many psalms which are prayers of David, of course. And there are are particular incidents where God shows his purposes for David and his son and his sons after him. And that forms the basis of prayer. I'm not going to stay on that. I'm just going to notice that. You might like to look it up because it's very instructive as well. But I'm going to move on to the son of David and to the temple. So one of the things, as you know, the history of it, uh, that David captured the city of Jerusalem, the mountain of Jerusalem, made that his headquarters, and he had this desire to make this place into the temple of God so that God's presence was not in the tent, the tabernacle, but in the the building, the glorious temple. It was Solomon who built the temple. But if you recall that, if you don't recall, I'll tell you anyway, when the temple was built and commissioned, there are lengthy chapters about the key position of the temple for prayer. And I might as well just put one thumb in it. 1 Kings 8 is the reference I've got. 1 Kings 8, verse 22 and onwards. This is Solomon praying about the temple. It's a long prayer, and it's about prayer. 1 Kings 8, 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven, and said, well... O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below, etc. And in verse 27, concerning the temple, which was however many metres long, wide and deep, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less 
this temple I have built. But give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in, the presence, in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then it goes a whole list of specific types of prayer. It seems to me that we have a a step change here. When these different things happen, injustice, disgrace, no rain, famine, a foreigner, war, sin, and so on, pray. Uh, We have an institution of prayer. This temple is going to be the place of prayer. So I put a sort of a step change there. One of the key points here in growth in prayer, here is an access point to God despite the sins of God's people, the temple. And here is the context for this. Sinful failure, the need for forgiveness, and the rebuilding of relationship and the furthering of God's purposes. When you hear, forgive. Solomon and the temple. Let's move on. The the temple being the place of prayer. I move on to the abuse of the temple. The history of God's people goes on there. And Jesus comments in his day on the temple as it's been destroyed and rebuilt. I haven't got the exact quote, but this is the substance of it. He's saying, this temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it into, remember what he said, a den of thieves. It was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, but it failed catastrophically. It was the exact opposite of that. They weren't in alignment with God's way of justice and righteousness. Here's a quote from Isaiah in those days, a fearful quote. He says to the people in the temple, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Quite stern, isn't it? These people had a place to pray. That was what it was there for. These people were praying. These people spread their hands in prayer, so they stood in the right way, they said words, but, what's the but? The but is God took no notice and wouldn't listen. Why wouldn't he listen? Because Their actions, their attitudes, their ways were completely at odds with God. Your hands are full of blood. It was a violent, corrupt society. People, I don't know what they did. Um, It says that I looked for violence and I heard a cry. Sorry, I looked for fruit and I saw violence. I looked for fruitfulness and I heard a cry. So, injustice... Uh, cruelty, selfishness, not mishpat and tzedakah. God doesn't hear prayer 
from people who are not aligned with him. That makes sense? A lack of alignment with the, of the people of God with the ways and purposes of God and God will not hear such prayer. It eventually led to disaster and exile. It teaches us, doesn't it, that if we're to come to pray, we make a serious matter in confession and repentance. We want to be aligned with the ways of God. It takes a little bit of effort. To th- what, what should we be... How should we be coming? What sin should I be confessing? How can I be turning towards God as we pray? I don't want to just turn up, I want to turn to the Lord. And as we pray, what is in alignment with his will and purposes? What, what sort of prayers will he hear? I suppose what sort of people will he hear prayer from? Number eight, let's go on to Daniel. So I've just whooshed through history here. Daniel, again, it's just one man, so I can't use him as an example to say it's good for us all to pray together because he was a solitary man, one man. He prayed three times a day. Do you remember that um, the, the government wanted to make it illegal to pray? And he still, you could see him praying because he, what did he do, open the window and pray towards Jerusalem or something like that? So you could see that he was praying and when the government made it illegal, he didn't stop praying, so good for him. Despite the king making it illegal to pray. And what was he praying for? Now then, have I got a reference here? Yes. He was praying for the restoration of God's city and God's people and God's purposes. And it's in Daniel chapter 9, which I will find. Daniel chapter 9, and here, again, is a remarkable prayer. Fascinating to think how this comes off the back of God revealing his purposes to Daniel, and then, as it were, opening that as an opportunity for Daniel to step in and pray. Chapter 9, verse 2. I, Daniel, understood from Scripture, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Notice that he aligns himself with God's purposes. Uh, the, the, the fasting and the sackcloth and ashes is a way of saying, I'm deeply grieved about this. It really matters to me about this. Different cultures have different ways of expressing this. You don't feel that you need to turn up in sackcloth and ashes. But to be concerned is the thing, isn't it? And he pleads with God in prayer. And what does he pray? Well, he prays in confession... He conf- I confessed my sin. Is that right? Verse 4. Am I saying the wrong thing? I confessed. But, uh, and if you go to verse 17. He acknowledges sin and he says, Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look 
with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Fascinating, isn't it? Quite moving. We're not asking because we're righteous. We're asking because you are merciful. Lord, have mercy on us. And what we're asking is for your name and honour. In that period of history, God's name and honours were tied to a geographical city and a geographical nation. Now, that is different. God's name and honour are tied to his people across the whole wide world, not in one particular city. Uh, That Jerusalem is in bondage. The real Jerusalem is our mother in heaven. That's what Paul says about that. And we are surely, like Daniel, to pray, Lord, build your church. Lord, see the degree of dishonour that comes to your name in our nation, in our city. That can't be right. May your name be hallowed. Hear our petitions and prayers for your sake, O Lord. Look with favour on the state of the Christian church, on the state of your kingdom in Brighton and Hove. Give ear, O Lord, and see. Open your eyes and see the people that bear your name. Bless them, build them, encourage them. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. O Lord, for your sake, O my God, do not delay. Because these people, this work, these causes are, bear your name. Lord, don't let Southern Cross Church disappear because it's called by your name. There's a Hindu temple next door to it. Lord, don't let the Hindu temple prosper and the gospel church drop out of existence. Chapter, that was number nine, uh, eight, Daniel. I'm going to whiz straight on to the New Testament to our Lord and Saviour. Put into this context, Jesus is, above all, the man of prayer. We find him praying. It depends on the, the which gospel you, you read, the, uh, the number of times that it's mentioned. Luke, if I remember correctly, specifically says at certain key points in Jesus' life, when he was baptised, he was praying. When he called his disciples, he was praying. Uh, he, he, was a, he was the man of prayer and the, the supreme teacher of prayer. And I think we've got another step change, so I'll put, put another um, triangle in there. And let's just think about this. If the perfect Son of God, the Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, lived his life in prayer, if prayer mattered to him, how much more should it be part of our lives? Isn't that right? He was sinless. Uh, He was perfectly aligned with the will of God. And yet, prayer is an intrinsic part of the life of Jesus. Like the song said about his native air. The air that he breathed, as it were, was prayer. 
And if I may, I would like to just, in a suggestion, take that right back to God speaking to himself in creation. Let us, let us do this. And we have in the New Testament the Son of God speaking to his Father. Let us do this. Uh, who shall I have as my uh, twelve disciples? What, what shall I do next? And, and depending on his Father in prayer. If the perfect Son of God lives his life in prayer, how much more should we? Now, there are crisis prayers. In Mark's Gospel, prayer time is crisis time. So he prays at the burst of initial pro- uh, popularity. If I remember correctly, he smelled. I think he gets up early in the morning and goes off by himself to pray. At the choice of the twelve apostles, he prays. At the heady excitement of the feeding of the, I think I should say 5,000 actually, uh, he sends the disciples away in the boat and he goes up to pray. And of course, preeminently, we know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed. He engaged with his father and aligned himself with his father's will in earnest. It wasn't haggling, but it was prayer, wasn't it? If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. He prayed. And no wonder the disciples picked up on this and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. That's something we can see that you are such an expert at. You, you understand prayer. We don't. Teach us to pray. That's what they said to, uh, to the Saviour. And his answer to that was what we prayed right at the beginning of our meeting, wasn't it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That was Jesus' answer to this. I've got a couple more things to say about the innovative teaching on prayer. And I'd just like us to refer to a couple of places in John's Gospel. I refer us to Jesus' description and depiction of the heart of the purposes of God in chapter 12, verse 30, where he says, I'm sorry, verse 32, but I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all to myself. It doesn't actually say men, it just says all This is to show the death he was going to die. Jesus says about his cross, when I'm lifted up from the earth, that cross will be drawing people to me all over the world, all down through history. I'll draw all sorts of people to myself uh, as I'm lifted up from the earth. And in John 15, 14 and 15, and I'm cutting this ever so, making this ever so condensed, Jesus speaks about the committing of the fulfillment of these purposes and the explanation of it and the word by which this is fulfilled. He commits this to his apostles. Chapter 15, verse 14, he says to them, You are my friends if you do what I command. So the apostles are to align themselves with the the purposes of Jesus Christ. If you do what I command... I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Shall I hide from them the things I am about to do? 
Sing as they are aligned with me and my purpose. Sing as I've chosen them. I've taken what God said to Abraham and sort of comparing it with what Jesus might have been thinking. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I heard from my father, I have made known to you. You are completely in on everything that this gospel revelation uh, contains. There's not a single thing that the Father gave to me to give to you that I have held back. There's not a single thing that I've miscommunicated. You, apostles, have got the whole deal, the whole understanding of it. I've made that known to you, and therefore, well, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. So therefore, go and bear fruit, and... End of verse 16. The Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. How wonderfully these things are all knit together, aren't they? The choosing of God, the purposes of God, the revelation of God, and uh, it's actually the community of his people, because he says you have to love one another, and prayer. It's all tied together. I will do this, and I... It's a mystery. Why would God involve us? But he says, no, I want you to be involved in this. I want you to be involved in prayer. I've I've, I've shown you things. Now, you, you think about them and bring them back to me as prayers. And whatever you ask in my name, that means you've thought about it, you've thought how it fits in with my purposes... Whatever you ask in my name will be given by the Father. The truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So let me conclude by doing what I can to wrap those thoughts up in a fresh definition of what is prayer. Prayer, Christian prayer, is the privilege of being brought in on the processes and the plans and the purposes of the Almighty. We are brought in, I think we can dare to say this, within within the implementation of the purposes of the Holy Eternal Trinity. We pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. We're involved in the mystery of the Trinity itself when we pray. God as Heavenly Father through the ministry and merit of Jesus Christ in the influence of the Holy Spirit. In a father-son, father-child relationship, we pray to God as our Heavenly Father. We are... Do you remember Jesus saying, you should have guessed that I would be about my Father's business because that's what a son is. You you might have had a dad who showed you how to do things that he did 
your dad was a baker, he might have shown you, even when you're a little child, how to, uh, whatever you do with bread, blah, blah, blah. Or if your dad was a carpenter, he might have brought you into his workshop and said, this is how you sharpen a, a stick, or this is how you sharpen a chisel, this is how you use a saw. So fathers love to bring their sons into their business. And here we have on this eternal scale, and I think we dare to say this, that the Heavenly Father treats us as sons, meaning sons and daughters, to say, I, I, I'd love you to be involved in my business. And the way, one of the ways, a major way you're to be involved, is I want you to talk about it. I want you to come to me in prayer. And I say, what a privilege that is. We come in repentance and faith for the very fulfilment of the mysteriously revealed will of God. This is a superlatively high privilege. It's more than Abraham had, I think. Is it more than Adam had? Is it more than David had? But it's what we have. This superlatively high privilege, superlatively meaning very, very, to be part of the fulfilment of God's sovereign, saving plan and enter into that in prayer. So I'm going to say, who wouldn't want to be part of that? So we shall meet for prayer this week and we shall close by singing. Amen.